Hello and welcome to College Admissions with Mark and Anna. Each week we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how stressful this process can be, so each episode we try to make it easier to navigate. Now, here are your hosts, Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the College Admissions Podcast with Mark and Anna. We're really excited to have Dr. Mark Brackett join us today. He is the author of the book, Permission to Feel, Unlocking the Power of Emotions to Help Our Kids, Ourselves, and Our Society Thrive. He is also the founder and director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a professor in the Child Study Center of Yale University. He is also the lead developer of Ruler, an evidence-based approach to social and emotional learning that has been adopted by nearly 2,000 pre-K through high schools across the United States and in other countries. We had the pleasure of hearing Mark speak at the IECA conference over the summer and knew that what he had to share would greatly benefit our listeners of parents and educators. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with all of you. So... After reading your book, I realized that the most important question to ask someone is, how are you feeling? So how are you feeling, Mark? Well, I've been saying over the last couple of months that my job is to ask people that question, not answer the question. <laughs> I am, I live on a roller coaster ride. I'll just be fully honest with you. Today, I woke up anxious for just, I guess it's a lot of stuff going on this week. And um and then my sister and I had a social distance lunch, and it was just great to see her. And um, so when the sun is out, I thought it was going to rain. So now I'm feeling cheery. Um, so I'm kind of uh, all over the place. <laughs> I love that answer. And in your book, Permission to Feel, you talk about the importance of actually responding and listening to the answer to that question beyond the typical fillers um, we have been conditioned to respond with. So. Can we start off by talking about why is this such an important question to re-educate our society on responding to? Do you have six hours? Uh, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, especially now, you know, in the way, you know, pre-COVID, during COVID, um, like people are, like I am in many ways, all over the place, right? They're angry, they're anxious, they're optimistic, they're sad, they're lonely, the list goes on. And, you know, when you think about the typical family, um, which I don't even know what that means anymore, but, you know, let's just say, we'll just do the stereotype here, you know, a two-parent family with a couple of kids, and, you know, both parents are working, uh, kids are going to school, you know, they've got financial things they have to deal with, they've got life to deal with, they've got their relationship to deal with, they've got their relationship with their kids to deal with, the kids have to deal with school, like there's a lot going on. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that people don't take the time to just say, hey, you know, how are you feeling? And if they do, what they want is the quick, fine response, right? I'm fine. Okay, great. Now you can go to school, I can go to work, and we're all done with the feelings piece of our relationship. And we know that's just not the way, you know, we are functioning, you know, um, let's just try it right now. I'll use Mark because Mark, you're my, um, you're my dad. All right. <laughs> and so I want you to ask me as your son, you know, how, how, how are you feeling, son? Go ahead. Mark. So how, how are you feeling today? Oh, dad, it's like this odd mixture of anxiety, frustration, and despair. 
Yeah, and Mark, you you talk <laughs> about this in your book. Notice how you didn't you didn't say tell me more. You're like you no, went back to the book. Exactly. <laughs> you, you talk about this in your book about most people only have about three words that they can grab onto to actually express what their emotional you know content is like. It's fine, busy, okay. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and most of it is driven by that those those time hindrances, yep. and so people don't think they have time. One of the things that you cover, you cover what, what, what the tenets of ruler, and I'll have you explain that in a little bit, but um, ruler basically allows people to adequately, hopefully, or maybe even in a, in a very powerful way, express um, what they're feeling and to actually examine how they feel at mm -hmm. a particular area of time and what to do with that. But I think one of the things that we have with teens, and since we work a lot with teens, Mm -hmm. We find out that their listening capability is not necessarily as good as we'd like, but a lot of that is also driven by time and also driven by they don't have the words to express it. So they have to have this mental scaffolding to be able to express it, and they need the vocabulary. And you mentioned in your book, we don't teach that vocabulary. Correct. So with that in mind, what are some of the resources? How would you suggest that teens and parents explore building that vocabulary and that scaffolding? Well, I think, you know, I'm going to be very gentle with you, but <laughs> um, I want to reframe what you said, like, because we're now blaming the kids, right, for not having the language or the time or the space, when it really is the adults who are raising and teaching kids that have to be the role models. And so I wouldn't say they don't have it because in the schools where I work, um, I have some schools that have been doing ruler now for a decade and it blows your mind with how introspective these kids are and how able they are to problem solve and, you know, think through solutions, et cetera. But going back to, you know, at the heart of your question is that, you know, how many parents honestly, you know, are spending quality time with their kids at meals, you know, on the weekends, checking in, you know, with their kids on a, on, a, on a feelings level, you know, and also being authentic, you know, with how they're feeling. So you've heard me speak, I mean, it was virtual, but I can be on the more vulnerable side in my presentations, you know, and I tell people like, it took me until I was 50 and I'm a full professor, like I can't get fired for being vulnerable now. <laughs> um, and I joke about that because it did take me a long time to have that feel, safe in my own skin and comfortable given you know my own traumatic childhood and upbringing but so many fathers for example will say something to me like you know mark gosh like i can never imagine myself even coming close to where you're at in terms of your sharing of your life experiences you know and i you know one guy said to me recently you know you know, you talk about you're being bullied and I actually was bullied as a kid, but I never talked about it because I was so shameful about it. And um, I would never let my kid know I was bullied because then he would think I was weak. And then I said to him, well, imagine if your kid is being bullied right now. Do you think there's any implicit messages that you're sending out to your child that are saying like, I'm not here to listen to you or, you know, I think you're weak. And he sort of stopped and, you know, free froze a little bit. And I think we have to get to a place where we don't see emotions as inferior to cognition. You know, 
you guys are helping students get into colleges and supporting them, right? And so here I am, a professor at a place like Yale. You know, a lot of people aspire to go to an Ivy League university. And interestingly enough, you know, um, my students, they take my course on emotional intelligence and they come in and uh, they're excited because they think it's going to be like interesting science. And I say, like, honestly, the science is like the back burner, right? That, you know, what I really want is for you to understand these principles for your life. And then they say things like, well, that's, I just thought I was going to have to like learn about the theories and the, and the research studies. And it's like, no, you'll, you'll read those. But like, truth is, I don't remember what I wrote. <laughs> and so I think what's more important is that you learn these skills. And then I get so much resistance. They say things like, you know, Professor Brackett, I didn't need emotional intelligence to get into Yale. <laughs> and I always joke and I say, well, you're going to need it to get out. out. <laughs> um, because, and I, I just want to end this piece with by saying is that when I work with high schoolers, they say things like, I get it, but I got to kill myself to get into college. And then I speak to the college students and I say, I get it but I got to drink the Red Bulls and I got to take the drugs and I got to stay up late and I got to, you know, sacrifice my health to get into graduate school. And then I teach graduate students and I teach law students and I teach medical students and they say things, I get it, but I got to wait till I get my residency or my placement. And then there are the 35 and 40 year olds who've never really taken the time to give themselves the permission to feel. And they're suffering from anxiety, depression, discomfort and building and maintaining healthy relationships. So this is why, you know, I want to rewrite education to make sure that emotional intelligence is part of it from preschool um, and beyond. Agreed. Yeah, the the whole idea of, and, and as an educator, I've always looked at, and as I've gotten older, I've looked at the educational circle as if, if you are actually teaching the person in front of you, you're actually missing the point. You should be teaching the person in front of you to teach their kids, to teach their kids. To teach I like that. Kids. And so the idea of the snake swallowing its tail, and like you said, it's the, a lot of times it's the parents who aren't qualified to be able to have this discussion or they don't feel prepared. And a lot of times I think if we were to say, okay, maybe we missed a generation. However, if we're working with this student, they're going to be a parent one day. Completely. And with that in mind, I guess, you know, we start now, start young and, and, and start building that vocabulary so they can communicate. Well, it's the vocabulary and it's the strategies, yep. you know, to manage the feelings. You know, the way I think about it is here I am, I'm a 51 year old psychology professor who has spent 25 to 30 years of his life, like studying emotions, writing curriculum for preschool to high school, teaching leaders and teachers and families, the list goes on. Therapy, I had, you know, cumulative 10 years of therapy. Like, if I can't talk about my feelings, nobody can. And if I'm struggling, like during these times to even label my own feelings, because they're so complex. And if I'm struggling with managing my own feelings of anxiety and stress and fear and overwhelm, I just think about, you know, the, the student, you know, who is living in poverty, you know, who is, you know, growing up, you know, in, in circumstances where they don't have the best role models. Um, like, how are they, how are they surviving? Truthfully, I think, you know, how are they, 
you know, what is going on in their brains in terms of the messages, you know, around survival and that fight flight response that they're in so much of the time and who's deactivating and supporting them and, you know, having a nervous system that's, you know, functioning at a, at a healthy level, who's teaching them, you know, how to manage their feelings in ways that they can achieve their dreams and their goals and have well-being. And this is why I don't sleep at night because I just, you know, there's way too many millions of children here in the United States that are not getting the emotion education that they deserve. And then you had mentioned how, like, we're going to talk about Ruler. So for our audience that may not have read your book, I'm sure some have, um, can you walk them through what Ruler is um, and sure. why it is so important? Because you said you've implemented across so many, you know, schools. Mm -hmm. And I definitely... Um, know of schools that, you know, where we help support our students that desperately need it. So much so that it was brought up as a health class, which, mm -hmm. you know, as compared to like, you know, sex ed, let's say. Um, and then parents in the district just shot it down and they thought it was a waste of time. So could you help, I guess, for those parents um, emphasize why it is worth in like investing in a curriculum like Roller? Well, the first thing I would ask parents is, you know, what do you want for your children? Like, what do you hope they accomplish in life? And what do you, how do you hope they are in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s? And my hunch is that deep inside our parents' hearts, they don't say things like, I want my kid to have a perfect GPA. I want my kid to have high SAT scores. Like, honestly, you know, I always tell my students at Yale, I had, I did, I, I had a lot of test anxiety. I mean, I have embarrassingly low SAT scores. Um, and I say to them, you know, I have embarrassing low SAT scores, but guess what? I grade your papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because it's not an indication of your academic ability. I mean, I've written 150 scholarly articles. I can write, I can think. I just had anxiety around testing. And also I was in a place psychologically in high school that was a mess and, you know, lots of stuff going on. And so, A, I would tell parents, you know, your kids don't have to be perfect at 15 years old. They don't have to know what they want to do when they're 15 years old. They don't have to go and they don't have to get into the best college that you think they have to get into because otherwise they won't have opportunities. You know, I'm a case study of that. I went to state schools. I, you know, I, I went to graduate school later in my life because I was still confused about what I wanted to do. And I ended up doing, you know, quite fine. And going back to that question about what you want for your kids, my hunch is that not the SAT scores, not the GPA, but you're going to probably say things like, I want my kid to have well-being, right? I want my kid to be, have passion and purpose. I want my kid to build and maintain healthy relationships and have love. I want my kid to um, have a career that they feel they just... They get up in the morning and they feel inspired and they, they want to do great things. Well, yes, about 50% of that will be that cognitive stuff, you know, like the general problem solving skills, learning how to read and write. But the other 50% is all social and emotional development. And because think about it, think about the skills that we need to succeed. Not, we need to know how to build and maintain healthy relationships. We need to be able to deal with harsh feedback. We need to be able to manage the disappointment, the frustration, the overwhelm, the anxiety about our performance. And the list goes on. So, you know, what I tell parents all the time is that the emotion skills, right, 
are that missing piece. They're the other side of the report card that nobody takes seriously. So Mark, you, you have teed up a question that I've been wanting to ask, and it hopefully will allow you to also define ruler and, and mm -hmm. how powerful that tool is in its tenants. But you also brought up the SAT and, and standardized testing, and everyone knows, research supports, that the SAT and ACT do not have a correlation to success later in college right. or life, if we really want to get truthful. So with that in mind, you know, and, and colleges now, they're seeing the anxiety and depression and, and suicide rate hockey stick in the last six to eight years. Uh, it's gone up 45% in the last yep. 20 years. Wow. And they're, they're, they're scared about this. So they know, and they're looking for these indicators on applications that say this student is not only going to be successful, but they're prepared emotionally to come to college and be successful. So with that in mind, how's this for a crazy idea? And hopefully you can talk about ruler. But why don't we have a standardized test for social emotional maturity? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, uh, with generous support, actually, from a major foundation on building these assessments, just so you know, um, they're a, a huge task. However, I am anti their use for any kind of high stakes or admissions. And the reason why is multifold. Um, firstly, my worst nightmare is that we have these assessment tools on ruler, recognizing our own and others' emotions, understanding emotions, having the ability to label them precisely, knowing how and when to express them and the strategy to regulate them, which we can go into more detail in. But the last, my worst nightmare is that now there's like an AP class in every elite high school and private school, you know, <laughs> that is like teaching, read that facial expression, look at that mouth, look at that nose, look at those eyes, look at how that gaze is. Or no, that's the wrong strategy. Wait, wait. And so like, that's what I'm afraid of. Mm -hmm. And so I think all of the research and practice uh, or the science and the, around the social emotional skills is about formative assessment, like understanding, you know, where you're at and like kind of where maybe you're, for example, um, I always joke like the, like the nineties were my anger years, right? I'm, I'm like not angry anymore. I kind of let things go. I'm, ah, I've got bigger fish to fry. Like, let it go, Mark. But I'm chronically overwhelmed. Mm. And so I actually need more help with my anxiety domain than my anger domain. Um, and so to me, that's what's interesting is helping our kids unpack, you know, where are they facing challenges with their emotional life and let's support them in growing in that space. And Agreed. so that's my goal. Agreed. I, I keep in contact with a lot of the students I work with and in through college and beyond. And one of the funny correlations that uh, as, as, you, as you say, those students who are staying up all night drinking the Red Bull to get into the best colleges, yes. And, and they get in and then they're cranking on it. And then about junior year, it's really interesting. So many of the students that I check in with, they say, well, you know, I was so burned out and unhappy, I stumbled onto like yoga or meditation. Mm -hmm. And they, they basically start to find out asking the reflection questions and the mindful questions. But a big part of what they don't do is how to regulate it and how to put it in action later. 
And much well, like you say, that's, that's an important part of that piece. Related to your, the college student thing, so here I am, you know, again, I'm at a place like Yale, high SAT scores, all cognitively, right, very, you know, gifted. And all my students, when I do research with the college students here, you know, stress levels have been higher than ever before. Every year they get worse. Everybody's stressed, 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 stressed. They say, describe in your words, how are you feeling? Stressed. And I said, well, I don't know. I think that's, that term doesn't have a lot of meaning to me. So I want you to journal about all the underlying things that are really like the deep, deep things that are stressing you out. Lo and behold, what I find is that stress is not the right term. Mm -hmm. The real emotion, which may come as a little bit of a surprise, is envy. That a lot of my students are living in constant social comparison. Like, your parents are richer than mine. Your father's more successful. Your mother's more famous. Like everybody's just looking outward and saying, you, can all, you only need to study five hours for that exam. I need to study 20 hours. You get grades without. The, and so they're like literally looking at everybody else saying, everybody else is better than I am. Everybody else is more successful than I am. Everyone's going to have more opportunity than I have. And that's what's crushing them. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the dilemma. And, you know, they go to the counseling centers, which are overburdened, and they recommend mindfulness and yoga. Yep. And I'm fine with that. I do yoga and mindfulness. However, I haven't seen a good study which shows that downward dog reduces envy. (laughs) And, you know, the truth is that I think that we as a species always want to oversimplify our social and emotional lives. Now it's like all about, you know, when Angela Duckworth wrote her book on grit, it was all about like perseverance at all costs. And we know that works, but there's some challenges with that. You can't persevere if you have no supports. Um, And then it was about mindsets, like gross mindset, just everything's got to be about learning goals instead of performance goals. And that matters. And now it's like, just breathe. Right, breathing is the answer to all of life's problems. And I always joke, like, I love to breathe. And I breathe in when I'm really pissed off at somebody. I'm like, "Ah, okay, now I'm even clearer why I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yes, the breathing does help you to deactivate. And it does help with other things too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm pro mindfulness. Don't get me wrong here. But it's insufficient. Like we need to teach people like real strategies and how to like, Mark, if you were the cause of my anger, I have to know how to really have a difficult conversation with you. Right. And if I'm chronically overwhelmed because of whatever's on my plate, I got to learn how to like reevaluate my life's routines to like take stuff off my plate. So I'm not chronically overwhelmed. Right. And if I have a negative self-esteem because I was bullied as a kid and everybody made fun of me as a kid, and that's the default dialogue that I have, because of the way other people try to define my reality for me, which is a reality, I've got to spend a lot of time restructuring my thinking. And so I just think that we don't give this side of the report card. The, um, we don't escalate it um, high enough because um, we see it as fuzzy and it's not, there's no answer. People like answers. They want math and science because it's, specific answers well with emotional development there's no criterion of correctness it's about an exploration as i say i want people to become curious compassionate emotion scientists right as as opposed to critical emotion judges 
who are navigating and asking good questions of themselves and others to build those skills. And that's why we don't have a test for it. I agree. There you go. <laughs> you, brought up, you brought up an interesting point before. Um, we always, like Mark and I talk about how important fit is when choosing your college list. And obviously Yale is an amazing school and Mark and I don't base our list off of rankings or reputation. Um, and you had talked about how people say they're stressed, but it was really envy mm -hmm. um, that was really driving that. And so I guess what advice would you have for, you know, teens and parents who are very maybe quote unquote status driven uh, in the process in terms of how to, if there is a way to better find emotional fit at a college, is there anything that you would recommend in that regard? I mean, I think most of our decisions are based on emotion, but we just don't realize it. And so, you know, for me, for example, when I was going on, I was not, I was, you know, I was not the kind of student that had a lot of options and choices. I didn't know, I didn't know what Yale was, to be honest with you, when I was younger. And then when I learned what it was, it always felt like it was something that was definitely not for me because of my own kind of upbringing and my, just the way I thought about education and was, you know, the way education was framed for me. Neither one of my parents had a college education. And so, um, but, you know, the example I have is when I was on the job market, um, and I remember walking around Yale's campus and walking around other campuses and you get a feeling, right? And environments have feelings and we should use those cues wisely. You know, when you go on the tour and you listen to the way people talk about the university, does that resonate with you? Does it feel like the right fit? When you just look at the architecture, I mean, some people like really prefer different architecture. They just, they feel more comfortable in like an urban setting versus a rural setting versus, you know, another kind of setting. You know, are you someone who wants to be around lots of people? You know, I'm an introvert. So, you know, I prefer a smaller campus, you know, these huge campuses with 60,000 students that I feel overwhelmed in that environment. And so for me, it's about, you know, checking in with you know, how does it feel when you walk on the tour? How does it feel when you interview people? How does it feel when you, you know, on the green? And I think that people should use that information. I think, I think you have actually touched on one of the most frustrating pieces of our job in the last year and what will probably be the next year. And that's, we don't, we, we've trained ourselves to try to listen to students on those subtle cues, the mm -hmm. nuance of language of how when you toured that school, how did it feel? Oh, then that school and that school also mm -hmm. won't work. But now we have students who can't visit schools. Yeah. And they're watching these video tours that are, you know, good to poor to outrageous. Yeah. And so they're, it's actually increasing their anxiety level because they realize the dollars and cents that are involved with this choice and they know they're making it with only part of the information. So what would you recommend for those students who are stressed about making that choice? What are the kind of the qualities that might be subtle cues they can look for in, in video? I think it's the same thing, you know, listen to reviews, see how people talk about it. What are the, what are the words they use to describe the environment? Does it sound elitist or does it sound like warm and caring? You know, those are the kinds of things that I would look for. But I want to say one other thing, that firstly, the environment is not going to make you or break you. I hate, you know, like, honestly. Amen. You know, 
And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, college is not destiny. I know a lot of parents think that like <laughs> the social connections at Yale and Harvard, <laughs> you know, that's going to, my kid's going to get network with all the billionaires and, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to get that Goldman Sachs job and then they're going to become a partner and make half a million dollars a year by the time they're 25. Um, and then they, you know, they're divorced at 26 and, you know, are in therapy from 27 to 35 and, you know, and then they go work in the Peace Corps. But, um, but more seriously, I'm even distracting myself from this conversation, <laughs> is that the, we have, there's an interesting psychology phenomenon called affective forecasting. And we make, we, we're always in these forecasts, like, you know, when this happens, I will feel. Mm. But we don't know what that when is going to look like or feel like, because it's all anticipatory. And I don't know, I just feel so strongly that you can make it anywhere. And, you know, am I, do I sometimes get insecure because I don't have that like pedigree? I'll be honest with you, I do. Mm -hmm. But objectively, I'm more successful than a lot of people with that pedigree. <laughs> and then I'm like, you know something, Mark? Like, you know, you did okay for yourself. Not having, you know, parents who went to college, not going to an Ivy League undergrad, not getting it. I mean, I applied to Yale for my doctorate, and I got rejected. And then when I got tenure at Yale, I remember when the president came and gave me a nice toast. I'm like, I just want to remind you, when you were a professor, you rejected me as your graduate <laughs> And so, like, don't, don't. Don't make predictions, you know, that are too far ahead of yourself. You know, like I always, my feelings are you just do the best in the environment you're in. And if that environment really doesn't work for you, then you transfer, then you go someplace else. You know, nothing is stuck. Nothing is permanent. Like everything is impermanent about our lives. Like 10 years ago, I didn't have any gray hair. Now I have tons of gray hair. You know, I didn't have any wrinkles and I got wrinkles. <laughs> you know, I'm, 10 years ago, I was 10 pounds lighter. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, um, I just think that we are so fixated on like everything's got to be perfect and the right thing in the moment. And rarely is that ever the case because life is more fluid. I love that. Agreed. And you had also, when we started the conversation, we talked about, you talked about vulnerability. And Mark and I have often said how that can be a good thing in the college admissions process, like to not be afraid to be vulnerable yep. for a student. But we sometimes get the opposite feedback from parents. I want my child painted in the best light. Like this is not a good essay. Um, so what would you say in terms of, you know, for those families, again, where parents maybe are not listening Mm -hmm. to their child in terms of, cause like I'm also a first generation college student and suffered imposter syndrome where I went to college as well. Mm -hmm. um, how important it is to be okay to let their children feel comfortable and vulnerable in their own skin, especially in a process as um, you know, like college admissions. I think it's so important. You know, one of my former students has a very successful college consulting company and I've, I've advised him and we've had tons of conversations and he sent me essays and the ones that are, you know, firstly, when they're things that I can't like relate to, like I read, you know, this literature from the 1650s and, you know, and I'm, you know, and I'm contemplating this and contempl I'm like, firstly, like you're making me feel stupid. So like, I'm not admitting you for sure. I'm just <laughs> kidding. But the, um, 
those are so like fake, you know, it's so like intellectual. And I think what is so interesting is like, who are you? Like, who are you as a human being? Like what, what, what contributions at this point in your life, not in 60 years from now, but in what contributions can you make? What are you offering the world? What are you, what are your unique characteristics? And not that you play an instrument that no one ever heard of, or that you traveled and, and volunteered in a tribe in a country that I never heard of. Like, <laughs> not interested. Like, that's, that's, that's icing that's not with no cake underneath it. You know, I want to know from students, like, I want to see their humanity. And I think more and more, you know, that's what's interesting. And it's got to come across as sincere and heartfelt and real with passion. Um, so I encourage that always. I, I think you'll appreciate this, then, Mark. I, I teach a lot of essay uh, boot camps and seminar mm-hmm. workshops. And one of the first things I do is I tell students, you know, vulnerability sells. It, it buys empathy, buy into you and your story and your character. And a lot of times I'll say, and can you tell me what your definition of vulnerability is, of being vulnerable? And without a doubt, 90% of the times they say weakness. That's their definition. It's weakness. Yeah. I say, oh, no. What if you reframe that and say it's courage? And that is almost a mind-blowing mm-hmm. thing for a, a team to consider. But as you know, I think that's one of those things that if they embrace that as before they're 40, <laughs> um, they, they can be a much more powerful person. I couldn't agree more. And I think the like authenticity right in that vulnerability is really important because it should like it's not about your thoughts that's thoughts are less interesting than feelings (laughs) and so like when i read something i want to get a feeling for this person's character right for the way they operate for the way they see the world and i don't think that we're taught that i think we're taught to be impressive. And there's a big difference between being impressive, right? And generating a feeling in the, in the reader. I totally agree. And I wish, I wish more. And now that we have your support Mm -hmm. and, and actually identify, I think even more students will feel more empowered that they actually can leverage those, you know, inherent qualities that, that really bring life to their, their story. And I think this, and what you just said is the, is the important word is, is your story. You know, we learn, you know, at a party, a lot of things that are superficial about people, right? Like I can tell a little bit about your personality traits. Like, are you mostly outgoing? Are you kind of conscientious? Are you a little, are you like a little, are you more friendly or disagreeable? Are you a creative type or more traditional type? You know, you can kind of figure those things out pretty fast by just chatting with someone at a party and looking at the way they dress and the way they interact. And then, you know, then you start learning about people's, what, what drives them, what interests do they have? And that's getting to the next level of knowing. But the only real way to know someone is to know their story and to know, you know, for example, in my own book, as you know, I, be, I was, you know, I shared a lot about my own childhood trauma, which I had never done publicly before. 
and because I, I was I grew up thinking that I would be that was like taboo you know that that made me weak and that um, like that should be a secret and of course that secret just rots you know inside of you and so of course we have to be careful you know at the time and the place you know that we share our stories but because um, you want to you want to protect yourself but at the same time it's part in, of why I do what I do and so when people ask me what motivates you to do this work I used to tell stories like I was a bad student you know which is true and then I had trouble concentrating because of being bullied in school but then when I talk about my trauma as a young child and how I was trapped with these feelings for five years of my life and had no ability to express and had no, had no voice and I really reflect on what I do like that's this is the heart like people need to be should not have to hold anything inside because that just that just exacerbates any kind of trauma and so that's my story and that's you know you can't like a lot of people say like i like mark's story can i use mark's story i'm like no that's mark's story <laughs> you, know, you gotta find you know and so like i had trauma maybe you didn't have trauma i always tell people like you didn't have to be traumatized to feel like you were the only one who cared about your own feelings you know, uh, there are a lot of people here that I work with, you know, that just grew up in very, you know, uptight families, you know, like we're like, nope, we don't have feelings. We drink alcohol. We, we sweep the feelings <laughs> under the rug. Um, you know, every, our family is fine. Don't you know that we're fine, honey? We're just fine. No, mommy, our family is really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you know, it's the death of a loved one. It's something that has impacted you that makes you just see the world through a different light. So I think I went all over the place, but uh, hopefully somewhat helpful. I, I had a student who started their essay this year. Basically uh, the, the, the hook sentence was great because it was, my family is a band of characters. And then they, you, they, you outcast to society. And it was, it was a really fun, vulnerable, place to go but it, the essay was effective it was his story there you go so, i mean yes so outside of your book what are some other great resources or tools for parents of kids of varying ages i have a toddler as mark knows and that we have been exploring feelings a lot lately mm -hmm. um so what resources would you say um, are very useful? So I know you had mentioned your app in the conference, but our, what resources would be very helpful for our audience to kind of kickstart their emotional journey? Well, I think um, not, you know, I don't want to keep plugging my book. I don't think I've talked enough about it, actually, but I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> is, you know, the tool that's in there, which we didn't talk about at all, which is the mood meter. You know, that that, that tool is so helpful for parents whether you have a toddler or you have a college student and because that is how our emotion system operates you know our emotion system operates with these two dimensions of like how pleasant or unpleasant do i feel like in my brain do i feel like approaching the day avoiding the day do i feel safe and comfortable do i feel uncomfortable and then what's my energy like do i feel energized or do i feel depleted and then we cross those two dimensions to create our mood meter, which has four quadrants, the yellow, the red, the blue, and the green. So yellow, high energy, pleasant, the happy, excited, elated, ecstatic, jubilant, optimistic, hopeful, the red, 
is the anger anxiety family, the blue is the down and the sad family, and the green is the calm content family. And what's interesting, you know, about that tool is that it's it's useful for building all of those skills, right? You wake up in the morning and like, how am I feeling? What color am I in today? Well, why am I there? What's the best word to describe that feeling? Is that really the precise word? Is that really how I'm feeling? And then in the E and the R is like, okay, can I express this feeling to people in my surroundings? Is it safe to be my true feeling self? And if it's not a feeling that's working for me right now to achieve a goal, then what's my strategy for shifting? And to me, that's a process that we should be practicing um, as moms and dads with our babies in the womb till you know our last days on this earth, because it's a muscle that needs constant work. Agreed. You know, for example, right now in these very difficult times, you know, where we have like many pandemics from the coronavirus to you know, systemic racism to fires to the list goes on. You know, I'm having trouble labeling. I'm having trouble regulating. And so like, it's a muscle that needs now, like I need a new workout. I need a new workout routine because the one that was working for me six months ago is not working for me now, which means, I, which means that I need to go back to being that emotion scientist for myself, not the emotion judge saying, Mark, you're the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence. You shouldn't be so anxious, right? That's what people, everybody thinks I'm supposed to be perfect with my feelings. I'm like, I'm just letting you know. I'm emotionally bankrupt right now. <laughs> but I'm not giving up. I have a growth mindset. And so, um, the, uh, and that's the important piece of this work, right, is, is having that, that mindset of, gosh, this is really difficult, but I'm going to keep searching for the strategies and the relationships that work for me to help me have greater well-being. Agreed. So, you know, that's a long-winded approach to that process can be, you know, abridged for preschoolers and it can be extended for your college students because you can do so many things with college students. Like, for example, like checking in. How have you been doing over the last couple of months? You know, what have been the five reasons that have brought you into these different quadrants? What are the things that are bringing you joy? What are the things that help you have well-being? What are the things that make you feel down? What are the things that bring you into an anxious category? And how are you managing those feelings? And let's talk about strategies that might be more helpful for you. And that's, by the way, a conversation I would have with a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Or a kid. Or a kid. Exactly. That's my point. It's like, this is like a constant process. Evolution. So Mark, Anna said I can have one more question. All right. <laughs> the, the first thing is, as somebody who's colorblind, when I was a kid growing up and there were things, questions that were related to color and they'd say, well, which color is this? And I would mm -hmm. always feel like I don't know. So in the quadrant, I'm going, I never feel green. <laughs> so um, with, with the, the, the limitations of language and also how rich your vocabulary is can stunt your ability to communicate how you feel. So for all the students and parents who are listening to this, um, is there a resource or how would you suggest a teen or a parent start to learn some of those words? Like, like you know in your book, people have three to go to. How would you suggest that they go about enriching their emotional vocabulary? Well, it's nice to begin where you're at. And a few things about uh, color, um, seeing or not seeing color is that the, the colors are arbitrary for the quadrants. 
it's really about the dimensions, yep. right? So it's about, are you pleasant or unpleasant? Are you energized or are you depleted? And then you put those two together. So if you're highly pleasant, high energized, you're in that upper right-hand quadrant and that quadrant represents, we call it yellow, but it's what it represents, which are the happy, excited emotions. Yep. So I added color because kids kind of in many instances like to talk about it that way, but it's not necessary. And I think actually starting with a tool like the mood meter is really fun. You could even have a game where you do like a competition in your household for like who can come up with as many words as they can for each of the quadrants. And then, you know, if you're doing this with children, you know, you're doing read alouds and a new word comes up and it's jittery. Oh, wow, honey, jittery. We, have, we don't have that one in our mood meter. Let's add that. Where does that go? Is nice. it? And then you start like literally just fleshing out your emotion vocabulary. I will say in relation to this question that if there's one thing about emotion vocabulary that is super important is that it provides you with a way to communicate in the world and that it is our human, it's a human right to be able to articulate your experience. And without the vocabulary, we kind of get stuck and we can't really get our needs met and we can't help other people you know, get their needs met. And I really believe that it's our moral obligation to help people get granular in terms of their inner experiences. Um, and what I find in my research is that most people are very, as uh, my colleague Lisa Feldman Barrett calls it, they're clumpers. You know, it's either like, I feel great or I feel like shit. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and it's like, all right, well, if you feel like shit, Sorry for my, you know, crudeness here. Like, I don't know what to do about that. Like, I'm not going to really going to scoop up the manure and like just throw it somewhere else. Like, that doesn't really work. So are you, for example, my last story is going up for tenure. I go to my doctor because I'm stressed. I'm having heartburn and anxiety. And he says to me, you know, Mark, this is what happens when people like you go up for tenure. Here's your Ativan for your anxiety. And here's your Prilosec for your heartburn and i'm like that's it he's like yeah you'll be fine and i'm like all right that is not cool like firstly <laughs> like i'm a professor of emotional intelligence so this is like really weird for me um i take a walk and i'm like all right mark what the heck are you feeling yeah and i went through stressed no stress is too many demands not enough resources i'm doing okay anxiety uncertainty I don't know. I had written a lot of papers, had a lot of grants. I'm going to, I'm going to probably get the tenure. So I'm not anxious. All right. Is it fear? No, there's nothing dangerous happening. All right. Then what the heck is it? Oh, overwhelmed. What is overwhelmed? It's having just way too much on your plate and having no freedom. And so I was scheduling my yoga classes. I was scheduling my half hour meditation, but they were like 10 o'clock at night. And then I get back on email at 10 o'clock until midnight, you know, and I was like, okay, there's the, there's the, I named it. And we say you have to name it to tame it. So I named it. And I was like, okay, scheduling yoga and mindfulness and all the other things amidst a 17 hour day, not helpful. Yeah. Right. So that's what we have to do. And I'll tell you one thing that parents do. That's a real problem is that they misattribute emotion for behavior. Like, I hate school. Oh, my kid is depressed or my kid is angry. But until you really know how they're feeling, 
you really can't help them. And so I would argue that we should do everything we can to build our emotional literacy because we're very proud of building our literacy in other subject areas like engineering. And I had our, you know, I think I failed probably high school biology because I had memorized like 17,000 kinds of mushrooms. <laughs> really, that's really helpful, let me tell you. <laughs> I, you know, I was an emotional basket case, but I could, you know, I memorized the, that there's like 15 kinds of fungi. You know, like, I mean, no offense to the scientists on this group, but like, let's get real here. You know, sure, you want me to memorize that? I'll do it if I have to. But give me the right to understand who I am as a person. What a perfect way to end this. So how can our um, listeners learn more about you, pick up your book, all of that stuff? I think the easiest, um, well, obviously, my book is called Permission to Feel, which is a whole nother thing that we didn't even talk about. Because <laughs> um, some people are like, well, I don't need permission to feel. And they get, they get like tense around the title. Even my the publisher was, you know, I, I, when I was shopping it around, like, well, that title is, you know, it might turn people off because it's like, it, it feels vulnerable. Feels confronting. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're like, why don't you call it emotional intelligence and leadership? <laughs> Boring. Um, anyhow, the easiest way to get in touch with the work that we do is just go to my primary website, which is my name, which is Mark, M-A-R-C, bracket, B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T, Dot com And then from there, you can read about my book, you can sign up for my blog, which is free, uh, or articles, and you can also learn about the Center for Emotional Intelligence and Ruler. Um, it's all, I link everything, you know, from there. And so that's all I got. I think that's all we have time for anyway. I can go on and on, as you can see. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to College Admissions with Mark and Dana, where we make getting into college easy and fun. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and subscribe to get updated each time we release a new episode. Also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.collegeadmissionspodcast.com.